You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Open up your Bible, if you have one, to the book of John, chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we've been going through a series that we call, we're calling Love That Gives, going through the Gospel of John, this record of the Apostle John uh, written by him about Jesus' life and ministry, particularly the last couple years of it. And we're up to chapter 7 today. And uh, much of what we're going to speak today will come from verse 24, where Jesus talks about judging with right judgment. Uh, and I was, I was thinking about being a good judge or a bad judge this week, I came across a quote that I couldn't, it got attributed to a bunch of different people, so I'm just going to say it's anonymous, uh, but I thought it was a funny, kind of quirky insight. It's, it said this, and maybe some of you have heard this, that good judgment depends mostly on experience, and experience usually comes from poor judgment. I thought that was a, a funny, uh, insightful thing to say that, uh, that good judgment comes from experience, and experience usually comes from bad judgment. But we did something silly, something foolish, something naive, made a bad decision, and then our experience that comes from it informs good judgment. And that's not philosophical, airtight logic or biblical exactly, um, but I do think in general what is true is that we don't start with good judgment. We don't enter on, into the world, we don't enter the scene of our life with good judgment inherently. We start with bad judgment. We, we come in, whether it's estimating just daily things and how we interact with people, or whether it's the big questions of God and how we think of Him, how we relate to Him. We start with poor judgment. And we need God to move us into a place where we judge rightly, where we make good judgments of things, of people, and ultimately even of him himself. Uh, and so we're going to look at this today, this idea of judging. And even, and hear me out on this, we'll talk about this, but how we judge Christ, what our judgment is of him, our estimation is of him. Because we're going to see this text, at least the part we read today, is going to culminate in that idea coming even from the lips of Jesus himself, saying, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so I, we're going to read this together here in just a moment, but uh, I know not all of us have been here the last several weeks, uh, maybe not at all in this series. So I wanted to quick recap some relevant things coming into John chapter 7 so you know what's going on and, and where we are in the story of Jesus. So a couple things I would note from the start of John's record here is that Jesus a few times has been shown, even in the first several chapters of John, going to the city of Jerusalem. There's a couple times in particular that John records that Jesus went to that capital city, the hub of Judaism uh, in that day and even today, uh, where the temple was, where kings, when they had kings, would reign. Uh, Jesus has gone there a few times already. And if you remember, if you were here when we went through some of these passages, you may remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus went into Jerusalem at the time of Passover and started, he went into the temple course and started flipping over tables uh, because he was so appalled at them trying to make money off of sacrifice and manipulating and ripping people off. He could not stand to see that and let it go unaddressed. So he came in flipping over tables, uh, which got him quite the reputation pretty quickly, and I think he wanted it to. Uh, but the second time we saw Jesus go into the city of Jerusalem was back 
in John chapter 5. And this is even going to be referred to in what we read today. The last time Jesus had gone to the capital city of Jerusalem, he, on, it was during a festival, we don't know which one, but he had gone on the Sabbath day, the first day of the week, like today on purpose, a day where God's people avoided doing work and he healed a lame man who could not walk for 38 years he healed him and told him to pick up his mat and walk and rather than the people rejoicing and the jewish leaders being grateful this man could walk they called jesus out for healing on the sabbath and calling this man to do work on the sabbath and if that wasn't problem enough, Jesus had a conversation that flowed out of that where he started saying, justifying himself and essentially saying, I can work on the Sabbath. I can heal on the Sabbath. God the Father works on the Sabbath, and I work with him. And the Jewish leaders could not take that. If you look back even in John chapter 5, verse 18, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, it said that this was why the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were seeking all the more to kill him. That was the last time he was in Jerusalem. Was There was this plot that was developing from these leaders as they heard Jesus saying these things they thought were wild and uh, blasphemous. They wanted to put him to death the last time he was in this city. Most recently, John 6, he's been up in the northern part of Galilee. He's been doing uh, some miracles and teaching. We saw how he walked on water, how he fed 5,000 men and all those that were accompanying with them from essentially nothing. Uh, he, he's been teaching them about him being the bread of life, these types of things. But now we're going to see in the story re- we read today, he goes back to Jerusalem. He, he makes a trip there again, but it doesn't seem quite as likely there at the beginning of what we're going to read. So I'm going to read this, John chapter 7. We'll go from verse 1 up through verse 24. So follow along with me. You might have some different words in yours that may translate stuff a little different. Um, But we'll read this once, then we'll walk back through it, and we'll see three scenes uh, where, where we see some important things. So follow along. John 7 says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. That's the area right around Jerusalem, the southern part. He wouldn't go about in Judea, Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers, note this, not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come, or not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? And Jesus answered them, 
My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them. This is him referring back to last time he was in Jerusalem. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? And this is the phrase that we'll sit on today. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This conversation goes on, and we'll look at it uh, some in the next few weeks. Um, But for today, uh, I want us to focus on these 24 verses. And I think there's a few things that the Lord would have us to see in here. And I think uh, how we'll approach it is to stem from verse 24, where Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Uh, there's been a couple scenes that we'll, we'll go through. There's this first scene where he's up in Galilee talking with his brothers. They're trying to persuade him to go. We think of it as down because we look at maps. They think of it as up because they think of how high something is. They're trying to get him to go to Jerusalem for this feast. Uh, then there's this second scene in verses 10 through 13 where John kind of gives us a lay of the land of what Jerus- what was going on in Jerusalem before Jesus gets there, sort of the conversation. And then there's verse 14 to 24 where we actually see Jesus engaging some of these Jewish leaders and some of this crowd that are, are challenging him, asking him questions. Uh, but it culminates in verse 24 where Jesus says, to not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This sort of would have been the ancient equivalent of don't judge a book by its cover long before there were books or covers. This was Jesus saying about, at least initially, about this whole question of whether he should have done this on the Sabbath or not, and this whole question of the law and and his understanding of it. At least with that issue, he's saying, Make sure you're actually thinking about this. Make sure you're actually reading the Word of God and what it says. Don't just make some quick snap judgment. Think about what you are saying. Make a right judgment. But I think you could also see, and I think some of what Jesus is getting at in verse 24, and even back in verse 17, where he's saying some people are going to believe and some people are not going to believe in me, is that Jesus is challenging these people, make sure that you are making a right judgment about me. Not just about the nuances of what I'm teaching, but make sure you are making a right judgment about me. And I think this, Jesus knew this full well, even if that crowd didn't realize it. He knew that people, every person in that crowd, every person in this crowd today, your eternal fate, your eternal fate rests on your judgment of Christ how you view him, how you receive him. Do you believe in him and place your trust in him or do you reject him and turn away from him? Do you walk away and reject? Jesus knew that. And he, want, he knows people, every human being is going to make a judgment of Christ. 
And when you hear me say that, and when we talk today about judging Christ rightly, I don't want you at all to think you are the judge of Christ. You are not the judge of Christ. Christ will be the judge of you. Christ will be the judge of me. But when, I, when we talk about this, and when Jesus says to make right judgments about him, he's talking about the, our view of him. Each of us make a judgment about him, whether we believe him, whether we don't whether we think he's the son of God or whether we think he's a lunatic, whether we think he's the savior of the world that I put all my trust in or whether he doesn't matter to me at all. Each of us make a judgment about him. Every one of you makes a judgment about him. I make a judgment about him. And Jesus wants us to make the right judgment about him. He wants to make sure we're not deceived, that we're not having our judgment be clouded. But you see in this text and how we'll walk through this, we see some different things that cloud people's judgment of Christ, that make them uh, contribute at least to their view of Christ. And we're going to look at a few of these in the characters in this story of ways their judgment was clouded and led them to misjudge. Christ, but these things continue today. They're things that are age old and that will continue to be till Christ returns. There's going to be things that cloud our judgment of Christ. And I, I want to say before we go back through this, ultimately, none of these things is the reason we misjudge Christ. Ultimately, the reason if we misjudge Jesus, it's because our hearts are bent away from him and because we don't want to believe in him. It's not because we're too familiar with him, as we'll see, or because we don't know enough, or because we make assumptions. There's, there's things that contribute to our cloudness, but it is a heart issue, ultimately, at the end of the day and at the bottom, is do I trust in the Lord and what he has said, or do I not? But in our experience of things, there are things that make our judgment of him more cloudy, that make us more confused and lead us to wrong conclusions about him. And so we're going to see three of these in these three different scenes. The, the first one that we're going to see, we see with his brothers in these first nine verses, the first thing that we see, a way that judgment can be clouded about Jesus, that can lead to misjudgment about Christ, is familiarity with him can lead, can contribute to misjudging him, to not viewing him the way that we should. In this first part of the story, verses 1 through 9, what's going on is that, we kind of already alluded to this, but Jesus is up in Galilee, in that northern region, and he's been teaching, and he won't, verse 1 says, he's, he won't go about in Judea, the southern part, the southern region uh, where God's people live, where Jerusalem was, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. If somebody was seeking to kill me, I would probably not be going down there either. Uh, but what we see unfold with this conversation is Jesus' brothers telling him, and I don't think they're being sarcastic and snarky and rude and condescending like little siblings sometimes can be. Um, or maybe they were distant relatives. I say that as the oldest brother in my family, as Jesus would have been. Um, but I don't think they're being snarky or rude or condescending. I think they're genuinely trying to tell him, Look, like if you are this teacher, if you are wanting to, to change things amongst God's people, if you're wanting to teach, you're wanting to, to lead rescue in an exodus almost again of God's people, you've got to go to Jerusalem. Like there's no way around that. Like you've got to go. People have to see you and know you. You can't do it otherwise. And they're pressing him to go to Jerusalem because they know this Feast of Booths is at hand or Feast of Tabernacles is at hand, verse 2. That was kind of like their fall festival, time of year-wise at least. And it was a time where they would, thousands of people, it was the biggest festival in Jerusalem. 
They would come and stay in tents outside Jerusalem. And this would have been the biggest stage, so to speak, in his brother's mind for Jesus to go. And they're confused. Why are you staying here? Like, go down there. We know they're threatening you, but go down there. Go to Jerusalem and do your thing. And Jesus says, no. And I I don't think he's doing it out of fear. He's going to prove that theory wrong at the next feast that comes up when we see at Easter time. He goes to Jerusalem and lets himself be put to death. He's not afraid, but he's wanting to be obedient to his heavenly father. He's wanting to wait on his time. That's why he says, my time has not yet come, or my time has not yet fully come. He knows the timing's not right to come into Jerusalem and stir stuff up to an ultimate culmination. Yeah, he knows that as a little ways down the road. But what I want you to see with his brothers, verse 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. This may have been his siblings that grew up with him. This may have been some extended relatives. But these would have been people who knew Jesus inside and out, who had lived with him for year upon year upon decade upon decade. They saw him. They knew him. They knew his tendencies. And they, they, they saw sinlessness in him. There's no way around that. They didn't see an older brother who was beating them up and messing with them and tricking mom and dad. And like they saw the way he showed grace and forgiveness. And they had seen him healing people and heard what he taught. They knew him inside and out. They had been with him for decades. And they did not believe in him. They did not trust him. They did not believe fully that he was the son of God. That that he was the one that they must put all their trust, all their hope in. They saw him merely, I think, as a human teacher. As a wonderful human teacher. As as one they wanted to, I think, see go to Jerusalem and, and make some things happen. But their familiarity with him, I think, contributed to their misjudgment of him. And this happens all the time when we are around something or around someone for long periods of time. A person or a thing that used to impress us slowly doesn't anymore. And we we don't judge them the way that we should. We don't value them the way that we should. I was thinking about this. We moved to Winona Lake about, we live in Warsaw, but to this area about seven or eight years ago. And we got here the first night. Uh, it was dark out when we got into town. But I remember when the sun came up the next day and we're driving around and Pastor Larry and some people were showing us some things. I remember thinking, this is beautiful. Winona Lake, I grew up in suburbs of Indianapolis, just a boxy neighborhood, no water, nothing. I remember thinking, this is awesome. I didn't even know this was here in Indiana. Like, I hope they hire me and I hope we can live here. Uh, this is wonderful. And now, almost eight years later, I drive by Winona Lake every day, and I don't even pay attention to it. Like, I literally drive and come up to that stoplight and turn to come here and don't even give a thought that the lake's even there or appreciate it nonetheless. And think of, I use this illustration sometimes, but think, ladies, you who have been engaged or are married, think about when you got your engagement ring. And maybe you did some of this stuff where you're like like trying to show people that you got engaged and you're like looking at it and you appreciate it and you you value it. It's a, an investment. It's a token of love and a, a pledge uh, from your fiance. Uh, but it doesn't take more than a year into marriage, let alone a decade into marriage, let alone a few decades in. And that same ring has been on your finger the whole time and you can go weeks if it still fits, you can go weeks, uh, months without even paying attention to it. 
the thing that used to be so beautiful to you, so valuable to you, and that is true. It's one thing if that's a ring or a lake. Who cares if we misjudge those things and become too familiar with them? But when you're talking about the person of Jesus, that is an infinitely, eternally big deal. And it happens all the time. And it happens in churches where kids grow up and they hear, just like these siblings, they actually saw him, but at least kids here get to hear about Jesus over and over and over and hear the Bible read to them over and over and over. And like Charles Spurgeon said one time, they fall asleep under it. Like it might be, they might know all the stories. And Warsaw and Winona Lake are exhibit A of this. Our town with a Christian college and tons of good churches and wonderful Christian families. There are tons of people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family who know Jesus inside and out and the stories about him and they don't believe in him. He's become familiar to them. He's become second hat to them and they don't believe him. They don't value him. And as we interact with people, whether it's our own kids or people in our community or when we feel this rise up in our own soul, we need to be wary that Satan would love for us to become overly familiar with Jesus. So we don't value him. We don't trust him. And we need to not be content with people just knowing answers and knowing information about Jesus if that's what matters. They need to believe in him. They need to put their trust in him, the one who died for them and was raised from the dead for them. And that ought to be our end goal with the people that are in our neighborhood or that are in our family or even within our churches that we believe in him. But familiarity can lead us to misjudge, to undervalue Christ and even not believe in him. And so his brothers, they, they are familiar with him. They're not believing in him. And Jesus challenges them. He, he gets a little bit... Uh, forceful with them and says essentially the world you're one with the world the world hates me because i called out but you guys are kind of buddy buddy with the world you can go to jerusalem whenever you want i go there i might get killed and so they end up going uh they in jesus verse 9 remains in galilee and then verses 10 through 13 is the second scene where i think we see another thing another uh, reality in life that can lead people to misjudge Jesus. And that's what I would call uh, ignorance. That there's this ignorance that they have, uh, this crowd, these people that are gathering in Jerusalem, yet they're still willing to make judgments, even wrong judgments about Jesus. So verse 10 says that after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up. Uh, I don't think Jesus was deceiving his brothers when he said he wasn't going to go up. I think he was saying when they were telling him to go and how they were telling him to go, like come right at the beginning when everybody's coming, he's saying, I'm not doing that. Like I'm waiting on the Father to guide me, and the Father does guide him to come up during the middle of this feast. It would have been like about an eight-day window, and he seems to come up in the middle of it. Uh, but he goes privately. He's not seeking just to come in to make a spectacle right off the bat like he does at the Passover the next, it's about six months later, right, where he comes riding on the donkey and everybody's saying, Hosanna. He comes in privately this time. And he, he starts teaching. Uh, we've seen a little bit, but the Jews, verse 11, are looking for him, these leaders saying, where is he? Because they want to kill him. But then look at verses 12 and 13. There's this crowd that's gathering in Jerusalem, all these people. And it says, there was much muttering about Jesus among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. And it says this interesting thing. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. 
And so, it makes sense, even in this world before 24-hour news cycles and whatnot, that the word was starting to spread about Jesus. When you start doing things like feeding multi-thousand people at a time from almost nothing and walking across water and people know it, and these things start to come out and people are talking about it. Probably some of those people who ate that meal up by the Sea of Galilee have come to Jerusalem and they're telling people about it. They're saying, you will not believe what happened this day when Jesus, this guy, this teacher, who people are starting to see what he did, but it's kind of hush-hush. Did you note that? Verse 13, nobody's speaking openly about it. It's probably just like the man who shall not be named type of thing. Like they're just being secretive and, and not really saying who they're talking about. And so it's not this open declaration of he did this and he did this and then he said this. And it's not this elaborate information that's coming in. They're just hearing little bits and pieces of things coming into their minds about Jesus. And most of these people would have never seen Jesus. They would have never heard him. They would have just come to Jerusalem for this feast. If you put a lineup of Jewish men there, they would have had no clue who Jesus was. They would have known almost nothing about him, yet they felt very free to make judgments about him, didn't they? Like verse 12, some people are saying, he's a good man, which is understatement if there's ever one. He's, he's a good man. So they're positively affirming Jesus. And there's other people who are saying, no, he's leading people astray. And so there's this divide. But these people, most of them are speaking out of ignorance. They know almost nothing about him, but they know enough to make some quick snap judgment about him. And most of them are wrong. And this is something that we as human beings have done since at least this time and still do today. We make these snap judgments, don't we, about people. We make instantaneous judgments about people and act like we know what we're talking about when we do not know at all what we're talking about. We have these little bits of pieces of of info coming into us and we think we can speak with authority about these things. These people are doing it with Jesus. I, I thought of some a funny example of this to illustrate this, how we, we make judgments out of ignorance even today. Some of you are familiar with the comedian Jimmy Kimmel. He has a late night show. He does these street interviews uh, with people. And, and uh, I hope I never get on these because they just make people look really dumb. <laughs> really, uh, Anyways, I will never do one of these interviews. But one of them, one of the segments that he does, he calls lie witness news and what they do they have this report this reporter go up to people on camera and ask them about stuff that never happened like that is just outrageous stuff that never actually happened that doesn't even exist and they ask for their opinion about it what do you think about such and such and it is amazing to me how confidently people just spin stuff that makes no sense. Like they, and they'll act like, oh, yeah, I saw that on TV. And when he said that, I, I cannot believe that. Like there's a recent example where uh, some of you may have seen the movie Black Panther that came out recently. It's a, a movie about, I want to go see it. I haven't yet. But this fictional, fictional, make-believe country called Wakanda. And there's this king uh, who's obviously fictional named uh, King T'Challa. From it, and this reporter goes up to people, um, this one guy on the street, and says, "Is it time to bring home the troops from Wakanda?" And this guy, this guy says, "Like you can see, just wheels turning." And says, "Like 
No, I think we need a strong presence there. And if we're there, we're there for a reason. And then they ask this other guy, what are people saying about the crisis in Wakanda? And this guy, he kind of goes like this. He says, oh, they're saying it's a catastrophe. There's a lot of bad things happening over there. And there's stuff like this that is nonsense. And like a couple years ago, they asked people about the first lady debate between Melania Trump and Bill Clinton, like, which never happened. And they're like, oh, yeah, he did so good. He used to be president. Like, he just was killing it. They'll ask about fictional award shows and what their reaction is to the governor wanting to move July 4th to February instead, stuff like that. And they'll just talk like they know what they're talking about and they, they cannot believe this stuff and like their authorities. And we do this. It's, I mean, it is funny, kind of silly when people are just making up nonsense about movies and acting like they know what they're talking about. It is a whole nother thing when people know nothing about Jesus but they act like they are the authority on the subject. And people in our country, not just our town, but our country, people, most people know the name of Jesus. They at least know some super basic things about him. And if you start talking to people in the community or wherever you go about in our nation, people probably have some quick opinions and judgments about Jesus, but most of them are based on ignorance. They know almost nothing about him, but they're quick to say, oh yeah, he's great, like I, I love Jesus, or no, he's not my thing, or I, I, I don't, I think he was just a good teacher, or they'll just make these simple blanket judgments out of ignorance, and Satan loves that. He loves people thinking that they know enough about Jesus to make a judgment and wrap that thing up and go, but we as God's people need to press beyond that. When people offer, when you're talking to them about Christ, and they offer these shallow answers, these just simple you can tell they don't even know what they're talking about. Don't be content with that. Like Jesus, note in this story, Jesus came to the feast to teach these people. He didn't let them stay in ignorance where they're just forming opinions about him, kind of willy-nilly. He came to them and talked to them and taught them and said, you guys need to decide what you believe about me. And he told them who he was. He told them what he was going to do. And he came to them. And we need to bring the truth about Christ to people and make sure they actually know who he is. And not let them come to judgment day someday ignorantly thinking they're going to walk in and that their quick snap judgment of Jesus is going to be enough. Like the Lord wants them to know the truth about his son who came and died for them and was raised from the dead for them. And that is the son of God that they must judge, that they must say, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, I'm giving my life to him. We need to bring the truth to people who are making judgments of ignorance and not just let them stay. Someone came to you in your ignorance, if you're a Christian. Someone taught you, whether it was your mom or dad, and maybe you made some quick judgments as a kid or as an adult, but someone taught you. Someone made sure you knew who Jesus was and you knew what he'd done for you and they called you to response and we need to do the same with those around us. Last thing you see in the last section of this story, if there's been um, familiarity as a thing that clouds our judgment of Jesus, and then there's ignorance that can cloud our judgment of Jesus that we see in this crowd before Jesus comes. From verses 14 to 24, I, I would summarize this, and this is a more intricate part of the passage, but I would say that the assumption we, or the thing that we see here is assumptions being made. 
that is something that clouds people's judgment of Christ is not just that they're ignorant and don't haven't thought about him or don't know, but they are may, they may be smart as smart can be, know things inside and out, but they're making assumptions coming into their judgment of Jesus. They're they're, they're deciding things before they even consider him. They're 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 prejudging prejudice against him before they even entertain the question of who he is or what he's done. So that's assumption that we see. What happens in this part of the story is as Jesus comes in, it says about the middle of the feast, he starts teaching in the temple. He's been there before, but now he's teaching. This would have been a common thing for rabbis to do, for teachers to do. And verse 15, the Jewish leaders, the ones, remember, who were saying, where is he, where is he? Now they know where he is. And they come to him, and they are trying to come guns blazing at him to undercut him in front of everybody. And they say, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? And the assumption they're bringing to the table as they're judging Jesus, their assumption here, one of them at least, is that if a teacher was going to be worth listening to, they had to be from a certain school of a rabbi. That if, if there was going to be a man who was going to teach the word of God to them or to anybody, he had to have been trained by a, a rabbi who was, had credentials, a rabbi who had authority and was respected in the community. That's what their assumption was. And they, they see Jesus teaching these people, and they're starting to be intrigued by them. And they, they're essentially saying, who are you? Like, who taught you, Jesus? And they're wanting the crowd to pick up on this, that if he says nobody, like I just teach on my own, then people are going to stop listening to him because they had this assumption also, the crowd would have, that a rabbi needed to be taught by rabbis before him. And they're trying to undercut Jesus and confront him in front of the crowd. And essentially Jesus answers them, verse 16. This is my translation of this, or paraphrase this. He's essentially saying, you have rabbi who? Who taught you? And they, maybe they would have said, and then he says, my rabbi is God. Like he's the one who's teaching me. He sent me into this world. And he has taught me to read this word of God and to teach it. And I am going to keep teaching. I'm just not spinning my own stuff. I'm not just making up my own beliefs and my own statements about me. I am teaching these people what God taught me. And my teacher is better than your teacher. And he's, he's calling them out on it. But they have this assumption they cannot get past. That if a man was not taught by a rabbi, he can't teach others. And he's not worth listening to. And they cannot get past that. And then they get into this further conversation where Jesus is going back to this story, uh, this real thing that happened to him months before, where he had healed on the Sabbath, remember? And he had told that man to pick up his mat and walk. And they had got so mad about that. And the assumption that, that many of them had, that these Jewish leaders had, and even it seems like some of the crowd has it too, like as they pick up on, enter into the conversation and Jesus even speaks to them in verse 21. It, it seems that they have this assumption that if, if a man was like Jesus, anybody, was doing work on the Sabbath and was calling somebody to pick up a mat and walk on the Sabbath, then they were not a good teacher. There was no way that they were worth listening to. If they're willing, from their vantage point, to just throw away the Sabbath laws, then they're not worth listening to. And this is the assumption that they're walking into this conversation with. And Jesus tries to press back on them again, even as they're trying to undercut him. And essentially, it's telling them, if you actually take time and think about what you are saying, 
you guys break, break the Sabbath to circumcise your sons. If they were born on a Sabbath day, you are willing to keep the law because you need to do it on the eighth day. You're willing to do that and give that blessing, so to speak, to them on the Sabbath day, the next one. You guys do that. And he says, if you guys do that as you follow the law, why are you, verse 23, why are you angry with me when on a Sabbath day I healed a, whole man's, a man's whole body? And he's trying to press back against some of these assumptions that they have where they're just writing Jesus off from the get-go. They're coming into the conversation with these assumptions and they're writing Jesus off. There's no way if he does this, there's no way if he didn't have this pedigree of teachers, we're not listening to you and nobody else should listen to you. And Jesus, that's when Jesus says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And Jesus is, wanting to, is challenging them to make sure they are not coming into these conversations with assumptions about him and writing him off without even listening, without even giving him a fair shake. And there are people today who still enter into the conversation about Jesus with assumptions preloaded in them. You go to secular universities, for example. You sit, this is, like, this is a cliche in some ways, but you sit in a philosophy class. And your professor, unless it's a rare exception, I promise, will come into the conversation, if you want to dialogue with him or her about Jesus, they will come into the conversation with assumptions that there is no supernatural, that there is no God. That, that is an assumption they're entering the conversation with. And so if you start to say stuff like, Jesus did all these miracles, and Jesus was God in the flesh, and Jesus was raised from the dead, they will think, you, are you serious? Like, there is, those things don't happen. They cannot happen, and they'll just dismiss you. And they'll try to per persuade you that their assumptions are correct. But what we need to realize is with people like that, and there's a lot lesser forms, simpler forms of that in our world, where people just write off supernatural. They write off any sort of divine work in the world, let alone it coming through Jesus. We need to challenge those people kindly to realize that those are assumptions they're making. That those are not things. They cannot point you to anything. They can't point themselves to anything that will show them God doesn't exist. That supernatural things cannot happen. They can't do it. It is an assumption they're entering into the conversation with and they're just writing off Jesus from the get-go and they're writing off any existence of God from the get-go. We need to kindly, just like Jesus is doing here, try to expose those things and show them for the assumptions that they are. Saying, you have these assumptions you're entering into the conversation with. I have my assumptions that I'm entering into that there is a God, that supernatural things can happen, and that they have happened, and people saw it, and they verify it, that this man who was crucified and laid in a grave was risen from the dead. Those are the assumptions that I'm coming in that have been shown to be true. Show me how you can know your assumptions. And they can't. And we need to kindly, as we interact with people, not as a jerk, not arrogantly, but try to show them the assumptions that they hold to be true. And saying these things, that, that familiarity and ignorance and assumptions can, can cloud our judgment, I don't want us to think that that if we as God's people who've been persuaded, who, who, who may have made the right judgment of Christ, I don't want us to ever think, man, if I can just unfamiliarize them or if I can just 
fix their ignorance and like help them learn enough or if I can just peel back and show them their assumptions. I don't want us to think we can logic people into faith in Jesus. I don't want us to think that, man, if I can just fix this thing that, that's leading them to misjudge, that I can make them come to faith in Christ. That, as we saw last week and we'll continue to see in John, if anybody's going to believe in Christ, whether it's his brothers who ultimately do come to faith, read Acts 1, or, or like no matter who it is, if they're going to believe, it's not because you persuade them to, it's because the Spirit of God works in their heart. But God uses, he used Jesus as a human teacher here to try to expose these things, to try to, to show them, to try to challenge them, to try to, 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 to help them see ways that their judgments were being clouded. And he wants to use us with the people in our lives. When we see people who are misjudging Christ, he could just strike faith into their heart and like reveal himself in a dream or something, but almost every time if he's going to change a person, it's through me and you. It's through us patiently answering questions with people and trying to, to tell them the truth about Christ and trying to expose some of their assumptions and trying to patiently teach them and remind them over and over and over that Christ has come into the world and died for us and been raised and that he offers us forgiveness. He wants to use us as he does the work in people's hearts. And we can be instruments that God uses to help people have the right judgment. I started by, by saying that we ultimately are not the judge of Christ. Right? He is your judge. He will be your judge someday for eternity. There is a day that's been appointed for him to judge all people. And that includes every one of you. That includes me. Someday you will stand before Christ. And he is going to judge you. And it's either going to be to come into his kingdom for eternity and be part of his people in a wonderful new earth forever. Or he is going to judge you fairly because of your unbelief. And he is going to send you to hell. Away from him to suffering and judgment forever. That is going to happen. Jesus knew it was going to happen. That's why he tells these people, judge with right judgment. But this is a big deal. What you think about Christ, what you believe about Christ is an eternally big deal. There's nothing more important to think about or a process in your life. And Christ wants you to make the right judgment. And he invites you now, if you will repent of your sins, if you will acknowledge them before him and repent of them, turn away from them. Say, I know you died for me. I know you've been raised for me. Please forgive me. He will. Like, and on that last day, when you come to face him as the judge, you don't have to come and face him with fear. You don't have to come and wonder, man, what, I, I was just sort of shooting from the hip on my guess about Jesus. You can have confidence. He will receive you into his kingdom forevermore. Someday he will ultimately judge each of us, and we need not fear his judgment of us our judgment of him is right if we believe in him and who he said he is and what he has done for us.